Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Bobby Stover. Bobby is EY's America's family enterprise and family office leader. He's a partner and has spent over 27 years in public accounting, supporting family enterprises to protect, grow, and improve around family and the businesses and investments they own. Have you gotten used to calling it EY yet? Um, yeah, that happened a while ago. I think people always used it. So Ernst & Young LLC was... was uh, um, there's a funny story I can't tell you on this podcast about what EY was. Um, we, we, the funny story is when we were EY, we didn't check to make sure who had EY.com. And so, uh, oh, really there was a, there was a, there was a surprise. So, but yeah, uh, most people, it took a little while, the bright orange helps, but people used to come up and say, who's EY and you'd say Ernst and Young and they're like, Oh yeah. Okay. I got it. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm just dating myself, but we met at a family office conference and you put on a great presentation. Um, and we, we've, we've stayed in touch and, you know, I'm thankful that you've come on the show because you are just a, a wealth of resource. I, I want to kind of back up. Um, how did you get involved? You know, obviously EY is a big place. You do a lot of different things, work with a lot of different groups, the public company side, et cetera. How did you get into the family business area? Yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting story. I, I'll call it my my career crisis, if I would. So I was uh, I've been in a couple of different flavors of firms. I was at KPMG and asked to go work on a large public company. Um, and I realized at that point I had public company clients and I had family clients, and and I just liked working with the family clients more. Um, and so said, hey, I'm not going to take that opportunity. I'm really going to focus on family. Um, from there, there are some things that happened in the world around KPMG and another big four in the early 2000s that changed my career trajectory. 
um, to where I ended up at, at Grant Thornton and really helped them build a business around family enterprise and family office. So if you think early 2000s, new wealth being created, regulatory environment changing, there were a lot of families that needed support. And it, it really wasn't around just their tax stuff. They kept asking questions like, what is a family office? What about governance? Can you support me in these other areas? So that's where it started. Um, and then I came to EY in 2012. And that really came after the downturn. You know, you like you said, you and I have gray hair. So everything that, that new staff read about in history books, we live. So economic downturn of 08, um, coming out of that, the PCAOB and AICPA said, hey, we don't need to apply those rules to private companies or family offices. And we'll talk a little bit about you know, the regulatory environment may be changing back a little bit on that. And so then all the big four decided to get back into the private client space. And I was fortunate enough to be asked by EY to come, come and build the practice there. So from 2012 to now, we've really built. And again, it's around that concept that family offices need more than tax and audit help. They have operational issues and risk issues and technology issues and people issues. And so we created a practice that really is the advisory practice to those families. Um, and so that's how I got it. I was a tax person and I was just curious is the long answer. And or the short yeah. answer, I gave the long <laughs> if, But if, you, if you've been involved since the 2000s, that means you are like, a, you know, that's, that's at the beginning of this thing because I married, I'm a non-lineal. So I married into the family in 2008. And even when I got into that world, family office was not a term that many people used or knew about. So in the early 2000s, it, it was very much de novo in a lot of ways. What do you think spurred the growth initially into what now is this burgeoning industry? Um, I, think too, I think it's around capital. So if you look at it, and there was a, a study that just came out um, uh who was it with? Uh, the Center for Fam- the, the Family Enterprise USA. And if you look at the amount of capital that that families produce, it's like $7.7 trillion. So what I think it was is you have the downturn of 2001. Um, people start to pull out of public companies and private is, is a great place for capital. Then you had families who, if you look at family enterprise, generally outperform their public counterparts. And so now I've grown this big company. It's grown to a billion dollars, $2 billion, but it's all in one place and I need to diversify. So I think what happened was really good run family owned companies spurred this through saying, we want to keep our capital and it's better that way. And then our point of view as a family office is everything from something that's embedded in an operating company that takes care of the business of the family, all the way up to somebody with a liquidity event that sets up a family office today. So I think it was this explosion of private capital and families realizing that they care about their communities, their families, and controlling that. And, and I think that's still, I think that's still today. And and what I've seen happen, I've talked to a lot of industry experts, it's really becoming its own asset class, its own industry, its own type of capital, right? This family office capital, patient, long-term, flexible, all these terms that get thrown around, but it's it's rivaling private equity or, or venture, and obviously the traditional wirehouses in a lot of ways, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing play out. Yeah, you can't get exact numbers, but we think there's probably $75 trillion in capital in private business, and, and it, it dwarfs those others, right? But And there's big names in that, but when you look at the overall family. And then I agree with you, what we've seen, and you've probably seen this, is there's a trend from private equity or, or, or wealth management to say, hey, we're long-term. And long-term meant they weren't three to five years, they were seven to 15. When you talk to family capital and you talk to some of the big family capital shops, they're like, 
it's a hundred years. Like we're, we'll come alongside somebody. And if it's a great family enterprise, we don't care when we turn it. It's great. It fits our culture, gives us good returns. There's no reason we have to, we have to monetize that. So yeah, I agree with you. The, the number is, is staggering. Um, and it is its own industry. And then defining it, it gets very difficult from there. Are you in, do you mean investing? Do you mean doing stuff for the family? Do you mean just I'm a holding company? So um, I, I think you'll see it more, more and more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's become its own cottage industry, and now it's now it's now it's trendy. But fundamentally, still, in my opinion, driven by tax and estate planning, which is why talking to folks like you, CPAs, tax-oriented people within you know public accounting space always have the insight that I think others lack because at the end of the day, it is driven by, you know, paying taxes, dealing with intergenerational transfers, et cetera. And so from that perspective, in the 2000s, I'm sure a lot of people were setting these things up. Now you're probably dealing with some fairly esoteric um, technical issues. How have you seen the services you provide change over the last, you know, 20, 25 years? Um, so if you look at statistics, and again, this is going to sound self-serving, they say only about 3% of failures of family enterprise happen because of poor legal and tax planning. Legal and tax planning, people are very good at. Where it is, is lack of trust and lack of communication within a family enterprise. So where our practices changed is in the past, and there's lots of great case studies and, and, and articles written on families that had great estate plans and then broke up or the, the, it didn't last long term. So where we pivoted is education, communication, and supporting families to put in those systems to oversee the capital, but also manage the development of the non-financial capital of the family, the human, the social, the intellectual. And I think that got left alone for a while. Like we set up all these great trusts then we or, or programs, then we wanted people to become financially savvy, but people wanted to become doctors and lawyers and do philanthropy and, and follow their passions. And so that's where I'd say our, our practice is really more. And we're doing a lot more work with third and fourth generation families, supporting them not on the structuring, but on education and, and putting in systems around governance. Anecdotally, Ballpark, what percentage of families you work with still have operating companies versus purely financial? Um, 60%, I'd say, of the families that would say they have a family office have an operating business. Um, I think what we find is families believe that those operating assets are where they get alpha in return. Um, and it's not just about you know churning through a public market. So um, most of the large families we work with want to own and or oversee operating companies. Some of them are still operators. A lot of them are still you know kind of board level oversight. And how much of that do you think is an effect of the amount of private equity that has come into the ecosystem that has created the wealth and generated the ability, the liquidity events to have these family offices over the last 10, 20 plus years? You know, that's an interesting, it's a very interesting question. And, and, and what I'd say is some of the large families we work with that were forward thinking, they had a capital strategy to divest out of their operating companies and start investing a long time ago. So they were very quiet. They were behind the scenes, but they were, they were doing a lot of the investing that PE was. Um, families, and you've seen a lot of it, there've been a lot of private family companies that have sold. Um, there was one that was, you know, um, 30 billion that was a medical company that folks know about. Um, a lot of that was around governance. And we don't work with that family, so I don't know if it was. So I, I just want to be clear on the pocket. But there's a lot of big families we've worked with that because they didn't get the governance right, the private equity came in and bought more for 
dis- misalignment of the family than poor operations or the ability for the family to uh, um, what do you call it, reallocate the capital on their own. So I, I, from my point of chair, it wasn't that people needed liquidity. It was that they needed liquidity so they could go their separate ways because they didn't have a good governance system. Which goes back to your earlier point, which I completely agree with. It's the it's the qualitative issues internally, which really cause the breakups and the blowups as opposed to the quantitative legal structuring, the papering, all of that. You can have great vendors, right? We all know that the household names that we can bring in and they do tremendous work, but it's the soft touch issues that really, I think, determine whether a family can sustain multi-generationally or not. Yeah. And it's, it's a real important, it's a real important item. And we do surveys in the wealth and asset management industry. So the other thing I think about when I think about a family office, which is a unique thing, you've got family members who are your clients, right? You're doing things for them, just like an RAA or somebody else would. So we try to monitor what we can get from that public data and then give insights to family offices. And now you have two things that you need to be thinking about around this. One is the family members that are Gen Ys and Gen Zs. Number two are the people that are working in your office and the people that are coming to work for you and, and, and what are they thinking about? So education around that is, has become very key for the next generation. And when we look at that survey, one of the two things that are coming up is, one, I want better advice and I want to use FinTech. I, I, I need things to work on my phone. I need things to be transparent. Um, I'm sure if we talk to most of your family offices, there's still a lot of paper, there's still a lot of secrecy, <laughs> still a lot of things that just that generation doesn't want. Um, and then um, um, the second item is transparency and fees. So the other thing we see threatening family capital is there's a lack of transparency of what this family office does and what it costs me. In most cases, you will find it costs less, it has better returns, but there's no transparency. When we look at the studies for external advisors, what what the millennials and the Gen Zs are saying is, I want to know what my cost is. I'm willing to pay for things, but I want transparency into it. So let's hop right into the, you mentioned a couple of mega trends that we talked about on the pre-call that, that I've been talking to a lot of other professionals about. Let's let's use one of the, the tickets that you mentioned, technology. I mean, obviously from the 2000s to today, been a complete game changer in how these families operate. What are you seeing right now? I know cybersecurity is really top of mind. Social media, obviously something that families are grappling with from a privacy perspective. What are you seeing at your side of the table in terms of how technology is impacting the family office community? So I think more than ever, there's been a seed change in technology. So everybody hears the term cloud is king. The big migration is everything is now in the cloud, which makes platforms and integration of platforms easier than it's ever been. So you used to have boxes and wires in your server room. You used to have to have things connected. That's going away. And if you're a family office, you won't be able, there's only like three platforms from a technology perspective that are still, you know, housed on your server room and not in the cloud. That was the biggest sea change. What that did is it made it easier to put best-in-class systems together and to integrate. So a lot of the problems of the past of building your own system and or they don't talk to each other, that was because they were bespoke on servers. So that's gone away. What that did was exactly what you said. It opened up a lot of risk. Things that work in the cloud are not always secure. And the kind of security that a family wants is not always there. So now you have this dichotomy of great tools and apps that work versus the security that the family needs and wants to protect itself. So the, I think the folks that are going to solve this are going to be the banking industry. So the, the big wirehouse banks and folks that custody a lot of the assets, 
they're working on a lot of this and saying, look, we have to, we have to do that. And we're, where all the money sits anyway, from a security perspective. Um, and so that's, that's the major trend that, that changed. The second thing is that means you have to have an enterprise wide risk view. So people say cyber, cyber is a sliver. And if you do a pen test, it's a point in time. Your IT department now needs to be able to look across all of your functions and all of your areas. So it needs to know how your, your, your ERP system works. It needs to know how your CRM system works. It needs to know how your performance reporting system works and the security across those, which it didn't really have to do before when it was boxes and wires inside your shop. And, and some side commentary there. What I've heard a lot of people talk about it is this, to your point, the enterprise software, the technology piece, the cybersecurity issues have driven the cost of having a true single family office up precipitously over the last five or 10 years. And I agree with you. I think, you know, for a long time, the wirehouses were the, the bad guys and people were trying to get away from them to start a family office, but they're one of the few groups that can afford the overhead right. and the liability, frankly, associated with having this robust cybersecurity that's now, you know, required for a lot of groups. I know our family transitioned to a multifamily office platform in part because we just, we couldn't keep up with the cost or just the technology and the advancements there. Yeah, it, exponential change, and we all know this. We're in an environment. Just look at any day; everything's changing rapidly. As an example, in our in our in our tax practice, to create efficiency around all the regulatory and reporting requirements, EY's invested a half billion dollars. What do we do? We're trying to solve the the information problem with technology instead of people. A family office to do that, they probably could, but it's it's not an ROI; it's a sunk cost, and they don't have the volume. Of, the other thing is the volume of data to put through to learn. So. What we're seeing is things that are families need to look at what's critical and non-critical. And we're starting to see families build, you're going to build more around partners and, and advisors than you're going to build totally single. So the virtual or the, the you know, the the hybrid family office is probably more a reality today than any true single family office that has any everything within their four walls. And so let's go to the other side of the coin to the human capital part of it, because you know, for forever since I got into this community, it was this, you know, this wall of millennials are coming and this <laughs> this great migratory demographic shift away from baby boomers in, into my population. But it's interesting because over the last, it feels like year or so, like the millennials are now old news and now it's about Gen Z and how do we engage with them? And, and, and the baby boomers are still around. And so I want to hear your thoughts about megatrends within the human capital space, but also your opinion about for the first time, probably ever, service providers and families are dealing with three, four, sometimes five generations at one time around the kitchen table. And it, it's it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, right? So um, without all that, a big family is complicated. I, I think when we were talking, I have six brothers and sisters. We all grew up in the same house and we don't think alike. So, you know, surprise. Um, I, I think what what is there is, um, um, the Gen Zs are going to drive the conversation, right? And what we're seeing is they're they're pushing, and if they're not, they're going to cause enough disruption that they're going to want to leave. So the really smart baby boomers that are still around are saying, "This is the change. It's the same change when I went to my father or my mother and said, hey, we have to change things." So um, it, it's going to happen quicker. And the bands of what influences Gen Z, this is a, a really important thing for families to think about. So. Think about 9-11, think about the financial crisis, think about COVID. 
these events are going to happen quicker and more, and they're going to make the band smaller. So baby boomers generation was much bigger than the millennials. Gen Y and Gen Z are much more, they're smaller bands and they're being driven by this change. So um, meeting them where they are is going to be the trend based on our research. And we, I, I didn't know this, but it was funny. We have, we have industrial anthropologists, NEY, who support um, how we think about and with our clients about their future workforce, but also future customer base. And so we, we monitor this, this constantly. So we're the millennials or Gen Y was the entitled generation. Gen Z is the do-it-yourself generation. Like they want to learn online. They want to learn when they want to learn. They don't want to, they, they, and it's because of, they grew up on a phone, YouTube, Instagram place where um, they can learn instantaneously. I think I shared this with you at EY. We have a ton of content and pre-COVID, we realized we had a great content library and we threw really good parties for our young people where they went to a conference they didn't like sitting in front of a, a board of guys or women saying, Hey, here's what you learn. They were, when we gave them a task, they were going out on YouTube and the internet, learning how to do it and weren't really using any of our content. So we had to revamp all of our learning and start to think about this. How do you be just in time? How do I let people um, consume where they are? And so I think that's the trend that the families that again, go back to this, uh, uh, keeping the family together. You're going to have to be there. Otherwise, it's going to be disruptive. And then what we find with the baby boomers is once they can get over the security and those issues, it really is easier for them too, right? You know, having a big paper binder or some of the things they had in the past really isn't convenient. It was just normal for them. And, and what about internal to EY? Now that your own workforce, your direct reports, your colleagues are spanning, you know, multiple generations, how have you seen that affect your own workforce? So. Um, Finance and accounting is at one percent unemployment, <laughs> so it's even lower than you know the five percent that we're, we're at national. So finding the right talent is hard. The things we had to do, we're creating digital workers now. So we have a we have a center in Nashville which has six hundred knowledge workers who don't do traditional tax or accounting. They're doing things like digital and, and Power BI and visualizations and things that people want to go into the future. So what we're doing is we're retooling our workforce using technology for what's next. And then the other thing we're seeing is a trend in family offices. We're having family office professionals come back to EY, people who left out of finance and accounting and wanted a different lifestyle, but feel like if they can't keep up with technology, they won't have a career path. So we've had people come back and they're coming back, not because they want to be in public accounting, but because they want that knowledge training. And then what about on the actual asset management investment side? You know, What are some of the trends that you're seeing right now? Obviously, it's been a wild couple of years with COVID and the economy and and everything happening, what are you seeing kind of boots on the ground? Are you talking from a technology perspective or where folks are thinking about investing? Yeah, I think more from a risk return standpoint in terms of how people are thinking about investing. Um, you know, to your conversation earlier about Gen Z, it seems like returns are not enough now. It needs to be value add beyond the return profile. The investments impact investing has become big, double, triple bottom line businesses, B Corps, et cetera. Those are all things that are in the milieu of the investing community. Yeah. So if we put it in two buckets, what do people want? And then when we think about ESG and, and those things that are, that are coming up, long-term value creation. Um, number one, um, easy access to my data where I can see my total financial picture. Better, exclusive, more reliable digital services. So again, this is where the wirehouses, and I mean, you're seeing all the new apps that come up that say, hey, your whole financial life on your phone. 
um, more quality contact with my advisor. I don't want somebody who's just my relationship guy. I want somebody who's really helping educate me. And then the final thing is exclusive membership. So is there something you're giving me where I get into a network or a group where I can get better ideas and, and better access? So, and, that, and that comes out of the survey I talked about earlier. If we go over to ESG and long-term value creation, it's still too early. There's lots of different standards that are being put out. Um, but for most of the funds are in the public company space where people have put together, you know, EY came out with an ESG statement, large public companies have. So now those have been wrapped into ESG funds. When you come to private equity and you come to families, they're still trying to figure that out. And, and do they report on it? If you went to a lot of the large families, you'd find out they cared about the community and they cared about giving back and they cared about these things long before, like you said, it became the new, the new trend to report on. So I think private families, it's going to be really hard to understand this for the families that want to stay private and say, we do this anyway. I think there are going to be other families and family offices that say, we're going to report on it because we're doing great things anyway. So let's put this in, in front of people so that we change the narrative about how we are giving back to our communities and, and social and, and all of those things. We talked about this a little bit before we went live. <laughs> You've been in the industry for a long time, not to date you, but um, it seems like everyone has a family office now, or, or it's the goal for a lot of people to become de rigor in a lot of ways. The reporting and these, the media outlets, um, you know, portrayal, uh, how much credence do you give some of these reports? And, and I come at this from the perspective of, I'm a member of Campton and IPI and CFOF and some of these organizations. They're terrific. We get these surveys. My father-in-law doesn't do them. Our CIO refuses to do them. Uh, there are some things you don't want to divulge. I mean, how accurate are these things that come out in your opinion? Well, I think there's, there's two, there used to be surveys that again, back in 2001, were done. (laughs) They were valid, statistically valid, and they gave you a lot of insights. In our information instant world, most of these are infographics grabbed from a small subset. So what I tell everybody is when you read a family office report, go to the footnote, read how many families and read the demographics. You'll find some reports that say, hey, we surveyed our 10,000 members. They don't tell you how many of the 10,000 members actually responded. So again, I think it's more points in time um, info. Like if you were sitting in a round table with CEOs and you said, hey, what do all you guys think or gals think? And, they, and you got an opinion from that. So I see them as more point in time opinion pieces than, than true data. And, and to your point, there were 16 comprehensive family office reports that came out in 2021. And, and I'm pretty sure based on the clients I know, like you said, that don't do them. I don't know if it was the same families that did all 16 for the different organizations or, or what was there. And then there, there, there were a couple on compensation and then there were a couple on investing. Um, but to your point, families that are private want to stay private. And there's only about one or two surveys that I know of where they've been able to create a community where those surveys don't get released. Like the families will participate because the, the, the community has agreed that those are going to be private. So I want to hit on something you just mentioned, compensation. We referenced this earlier, the you know 1% unemployment rate in your industry, um, the drive for talent has become ultra competitive across tech, venture capital, private equity. Wall Street's kind of left behind in a lot of ways. And families are really out there trying to secure and, and retain these folks. And they have a lot more flexibility than some of the other groups we mentioned. What are you seeing within the compensation space right now? The interesting thing is there's compensation that doesn't cost you anything that families have now had to, to give. So as an example, EY pre-pandemic, we, we, we um, 
piloted jeans as jeans always in the West and our partners were up in arms. And then somebody said, Hey, it doesn't cost us a dime. And now we're jeans unless a client says we're not jeans. The, 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 the um, benefit we got from our workforce of that was immense. So family offices traditionally had said, no, we have to, we have to be formal. We have to be in the office. We have to do that. So that's the number one compensation thing that all family offices have now said, we're going to have to have some sort of flexible arrangement or we're not going to be able to hire. And so, so that's number one. Number two, the, the costs are going up. Um, and what we're seeing is family offices generally are a base bonus and generally a, a pretty cost of living raise is generally what we see. And then the bonus is where they really reward people. Paying those bonuses early and more frequently on a shorter term basis is what's going to matter. And then finally, EY had to realize this too, immediate benefits are what matter to the the Ys and the Zs. The, the retirement plans and those are nice, nice to have. Uh, they're going to have to think about that in the future, but the, the immediate cash comp, people aren't looking at overall packages. It's hard for them to see that whole, hey, look, I'm getting a much better benefit with my, my benefits and all these other things. So really um, formulating and, and what we find in family offices is they don't really hand out what your total compensation package is. Some of you guys have, a lot of family offices have you know incredible medical plans that take care of a lot and are fully paid for but they don't really show that to their, what that costs the family to their employees. So more transparency, pay bonuses more often, and these simple things of work from home, wear jeans, et cetera. Those are the, the three big ones in compensation. Let's switch gears here and go to regulatory environment. Um, you know, family offices have become higher profile. There've been some big liquidity events. They are, they are becoming actors within the economic stage here alongside PE and VC and, and Wall Street. The ProPublica report that came out, the Archegos kind of fiasco. How are you talking to your clients right now about the potential for regulatory oversight within the family office community? So one is we rely on the SEC attorneys a lot. (laughs) Since we're a public accounting firm and not a law firm, we do have a regulatory environment because of the public company work we do. So we monitor the comments that are coming out from the SEC and we try to talk to those regulators. I think what the regulators believe when it comes to SEC matters and, and trading of family office, you can fix them with the disclosures that are required, you know, 13F, whatever. So the Arceus, which could have been a family office, could have happened in a PE shop, could have happened in an RAA. So they're focused on how do we get the reporting versus trying to come up with a regulation over an industry. The other thing is everything kind of gets lumped together. So you've got PE and hedge and, and all those things. So the, it's funny, the SEC came out with comments back in October on additional disclosures for private companies. A lot of that's driven at the private equity industry, not so much family companies, but they generally throw it into private. And that was largely not picked up until the Wall Street Journal and some others published it again in January. So I think I think you will continue to have this debate. I think the I think the regulators are going, what's the benefit and what are we trying to solve for? Just having information for the sake of information, who cares? What, where would we potentially harm the public markets or people, everyday people that are invested in public markets? I think that's really what they're focused on. So the regulatory risk that we just talked about, what are the other concerns that families have right now when they're looking at their kind of overall risk spectrum? What are the two or three things that you're hearing over and over again from groups that you know they're worried about for the next five, 10 years? Yeah. So regulatory, speed of regulatory change um, across global footprint. So take what we just said about SEC, but multiply at times, different governments, jurisdictions, et cetera. So 
families want to be compliant. It's just the rate of change is so big. They're afraid of non-compliance. Number one. Number two, there are a lot of things in the internal revenue code that if you don't do have severe penalties where it wasn't the intent. So it's an information. I didn't give you a form on something. Wasn't my intent, but I just missed it. And the penalties are, are severe and large. And, and they're worried about that, not because they don't want to be compliant, but because they think it's a, a little overreaching. Um, privacy is, is a huge one. So if you look, everybody's online and the ability for somebody to make it look like you or say it was you and the reputational and other damage that families could have is around that. So, and, and that privacy is also around, and that's part of, you know, the, the ProPublica. And there was a letter that went um, from Republican senators to the IRS saying, hey, how did this private information get out there? The families I talked to are only concerned about the, the, the protection of their family. They're like, yeah, the data's out there. It's okay. But if people are getting information where somebody could show up at a doorstep who's you know, not okay and, and has a wrong impression, somebody could be harmed and we, we don't want that to happen. So th- those, those are really the ones I'm seeing. We've covered the other ones. Like I got to keep my people. I got to make sure technology's there. And then the third one we already touched on is enterprise risk. I'm really, what do I need to be concerned about so I can monitor it and, and shore it up so I don't have a, a bad loss somewhere? What are the common themes or characteristics that you see in successful multi-generational families? So the successful, the ones that are fourth, fifth, sixth generation, they have a, a governance system that sits over the, um, the, the capital. They have qualified people running the capital. They have a governance system that sits over the family and the two items work in parallel. They don't try to say, hey, the family gets to decide on everything on how we invest, but we'll be transparent and, and we'll show that to the family. The second thing is those families have move to make sure they have relationship managers by family or family branch. In a lot of families, you know, I had a tax manager working with you, but if you think of a financial institution, one of their successes is having a qualified person who can coordinate, but also talk to you. And I mentioned it in that survey, more interaction with my advisor where I'm getting better advice. So I'd say those are the two things, having a a good governance system that manages the capital, provides transparency to the family, focuses on non-financial capital development of future generations and education. And then really this, this advisor concept, we're seeing a lot of families that didn't have it before when they talk to other successful families saying, yeah, we need those advisors to be able to talk to our next generation and coordinate. Are you seeing families be more global in terms of household location, um, you know, uh, makeup? And has that been accelerated with COVID? Yes, I, I think both inbound and outbound. So if we went if we went globally, families are becoming more global. And I think it's because the world's shrinking because of technology and Zoom and, and a lot of the things that we've been able to do during the pandemic. So we are seeing that. And then family members are, you know, they're traveling to great places and it's easier than ever. So, you know, I, I want to live on the coast of Spain or, you know, Singapore's the new hub of, of Asia Pac and it's got a lot of private equity coming in. So we're seeing families become more global. Some families have a philosophy, no, we're going to stay in country, but I'd say the general trend globally is to make sure that you're in the places that you want to be. And some of that goes back to privacy and, and risk. So people are nervous about that. And, and I want to be able to operate and keep the family safe. So where are those jurisdictions as well? Bobby, you've been incredible. <laughs> I think you've answered all the questions I have. You've got to <laughs> burn through this. You're a fast talker, um, but it's been incredible. Um if people are interested in, you know, connecting with you, learning more about EY's, you know, private business and family office services, what's the best way for them to engage with you and the content you're putting out there? Yeah. So, you know, I always 
I'm sure you love getting emails too, but you know, so it's bobby.stover at ey.com. Or if you type in EY Family Office Advisory, a lot of our content and items come up and you can be on the website and pull down a lot of the things that I've been talking about. Um, and there's also a if you want to remain anonymous, you can click there and, and say, contact me. Um, so, you know, great to be with you. It was great to meet you in, in Nashville. Um, I am a little bit of a fast talker, but they said on Zoom, you're supposed to talk. You're supposed to talk fast. So. <laughs> no, it's great. And so one last final question for people who aren't watching the video, you're wearing a Titan shirt. It is the first weekend of playoffs. Titans have a bye. We're going to see who they play next week. How confident are you that they're going to be able to, you know, run the table this year? Well, to the, I, I'm confident. I, I think we've I think we've been resilient. You're in Nashville. I've been a Titans fan. You can see in the background on the video since they were the Oilers. And you know, so for the Tennessee people, I'm not. A, you know, I love Tennessee Titans. I was an Oilers fan back with the Warren Moons and the, and the Earl Campbells, and we had a lot of great running backs. So this is a long winded. I'm making my longest answer about football. <laughs> uh, I think we get Henry back. I think we're great. I I think there's a lot of confidence and pride and being at home. I think gets us over the hump. And I'd like to be back in the Super Bowl just like 2001. And I, I had a daughter that was born that year, and she's a Titans fan as well. So that's going to be the bucket list item. So they need to get to the Super Bowl because she goes to school in LA, and then I can take her to the Super Bowl at SoFi. So that's my that, that's my answer. I've got it all planned out already. I love it. I love it. Well, I'll, I'll be there. Hopefully, you know, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise next weekend. I'll make sure that the beer is cold, and um, I'll do my best to cheer on Derek Henry. But Bobby, I want to thank you for joining me today. It was awesome to connect with you at the conference. You're putting out incredible content and you've been in this space for a very long time. So I encourage people to reach out. EY does incredible work. Um, and, and so I definitely want people to find out more about what you all are doing. So thank you again for joining me. Great. Thanks for having me. I, you know, it was a real pleasure to meet you there. It was, it was kind of the first live event I had done. So it was really, really awesome. And I really appreciate you considering me to come on and talk to your audience. So everybody have a great, you know, great time and enjoy the playoffs and go Titans. Awesome. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.